Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. I'd like to say thank you to this episode's sponsor, American Giant. They offer premium quality clothes for men and women that are built to last. I have a sweatshirt, and man, it is the best sweatshirt I've ever received. It is so warm and so durable at the same time. You can get 15% off your first purchase with code STARTINGSMALL, and that's on American-Giant.com. That's code STARTINGSMALL for your first purchase, and enjoy the episode. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Seth Maxwell, CEO and founder of The Thirst Project, the world's largest youth water organization. At 19 years old, Seth became aware of the water crisis, which inspired him to create The Thirst Project to provide safe and clean drinking water for communities across the world. Listen as we talk about Seth's upbringing and the overall inspiration towards The Thirst Project. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Starting Small podcast. Today, I'm joined by Seth Maxwell of The Thirst Project. Seth, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So I want to start out with your upbringing. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? So I was born in Crawfordsville, Indiana, uh, but spent most of my life uh, growing up in Indianapolis. Uh, We did move a lot when I was a kid for a a brief period of time. We lived in a suburb of Chicago called Schaumburg. But uh, yeah, for the majority of my life, I grew up in Indianapolis. Gotcha. So actually, I'm from South Bend, Indiana, so I'm pretty familiar with this area. Yeah. So where did you go to high school then? I'm a graduate of Franklin Central High School. Okay. I'm I'm not sure if you heard of... Penn, but I went to Penn High School, and it's a fairly large yeah. school oh, yeah. in northern Indiana. Yep. Absolutely. So were you involved with any hobbies growing up, say uh, sports or fine arts? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was definitely not super athletic uh, as a kid growing up, but I loved art, man. From, a, from the time that I was just a little kid, I was always telling stories. And for me, uh, theater and music kind of became my two outlets of expression and the mm. way that I really spent most of my childhood growing up. Awesome. I saw in 2006 that you went on to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And what was your experience like there? Man, so yeah, I mean, from like I said, from the time I was a little kid, I, I grew up doing lots of theater, and uh, it really it kind of shaped and defined the majority of my young life. I did a ton of community theater and some professional theater around town, and uh, got to travel, you know, to Europe with a touring show. And so, uh, when I graduated high school and moved to Los Angeles to go to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, I was pretty singularly focused on entertainment and storytelling and thought Mm. that was the path I wanted to pursue. And uh, it was honestly an incredible experience. It's a conservatory school that was, you know, just deeply focused on preparing you for a career in theater and in acting. And so uh, I I built some incredible friendships and and learned so much and was able to obviously continue to hone uh, my craft. But uh, some of the best memories of my life were there. For sure. I I saw in 2008 that this is when the Thirst Project was created. Were you still in school at this time or... Did you finish or was this following school? Um, So I was actually, gosh, I was finishing my second year at the academy when I learned about the water crisis. And that is when I started what I was calling the thirst project at the time, which was just a group of friends and and me who would meet at school, almost like a club. And then I basically got my friends convinced to help me do events around town or help raise awareness either on our campus or uh, around Los Angeles to try to just get people talking about this issue and doing something about it. For sure. So 
yeah, what inspired you to create the Thirst Project then? Then, other sense, what made you become aware of the water crisis? So when I was, gosh, 19, I had a friend who was a photojournalist for Nat Geo, and she was sent on an assignment where she lived for a year and a half in different communities across Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, South and Central America. And her job was to document and report on the progress on the UN's Millennial Development Goals. And so uh, Mm -hmm. when she came back, she had been gone for so long and we got together to catch up and she just as you do when you're catching up with a friend sat across from me with coffee and pulled out her laptop and started showing me just the most stunning photos of people Mm. she had met and communities that she'd encountered and you know her job was super interesting because there were these 15 goals that were set out by the united nations uh for what needed to be done to eradicate extreme poverty and they include everything from land tenure and food security and access to education and water and sanitation and hygiene and so in communities where there have been great efforts to try to reach these goals, she went and lived for six weeks at a time that totaled up to this year and a half. And she built these pretty intimate relationships with people. You know, you live there for six weeks. She wasn't just flying in and out with a camera, yeah. uh, but she was really evaluating the progress on these goals. And it was so fascinating because I sat across from her looking at these beautiful photos and listening to stories like, you know, this is Sophie. She's seven we hung out for six weeks. We wow. played with dolls. I watched her drink water from this dirty stream. I, I, I watched her die of cholera. Just oh. crazy stuff that That's was heart wrenching. And the interesting, like, through line that every one of her stories had was, you know, it doesn't matter almost like how much we try to improve access to education by building schools and attempting to outfit them with teachers. Mm-hmm. You can't bring education to a school or to a community rather if all of your kids are out walking six or seven or eight hours a day just to fetch dirty water. So if Mm. you care about education, you care about water. Or similarly, you know, you can't develop food security initiatives from agricultural development or anything like that without safe water. So if you care about food and you care about hunger, you care about water. And it was the first time I was ever, A, made aware of how critically intersectional water was in every humanitarian issue you cared about. But also it was the first time I learned about the water crisis in general and its scope. Because at that point, 1.1 billion people just didn't have access to basic, safe, clean drinking water. And I thought, man, you know, I was like, I was 19. And I was like, how, I'm a decently well-educated person. How have I never heard of this before? Yeah. And so that was really my introduction to the water crisis. Wow, that, that's mind-blowing. So just to set a, a checkpoint here, how much does the average well cost to install if you have just a, so, a basic number? So yeah, we, I, I lead, for those of you who don't know, I lead an organization called The Thirst Project. We build freshwater wells, uh, spring protection systems, rainwater harvesting systems in developing countries to provide people with safe, clean water. Uh, and, you know, the average water project i'll just give you an example of the country called eswatini okay. uh, formerly swaziland so the kingdom of eswatini is where we have the majority of our impact probably 80 percent of our work is done in that country and uh, it costs about twelve thousand dollars to provide what we call a wash program so it's water and sanitation and hygiene and so uh, the water component is typically a hand pump borehole well sometimes it's uh, a spring protection system. Sometimes it's a combination of those and rainwater harvesting. But yeah, the, to do that entire project to bring water, sanitation, and hygiene to a village or a community of about 500 people is about $12,000. How did you begin to spread awareness to then attract donations at this point? Uh, 
so I don't know if this is uh, the right way or the best way, but uh, for, for me, you know, I was 19 and mm -hmm. I just started talking to every single person I could get my hands on. Essentially, anybody who was in my immediate sphere. And I think a lot of times, you know, it's easy to look at groups or organizations that are 20, 50, 100 years old and go, man, like, you know, they have all these resources and all of these established systems and, and, and think that that's where you want to start. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, we were so haphazard at the beginning it was literally anybody that would listen to me from teachers to students and parents and so uh i just started having conversations with people saying did you know did you know this was an issue and so uh, the first group i've managed to sort of convince to help me it was my friends i got six close college friends together and the seven of us we went out around town and just started doing these like very ragtag pop-up installations <laughs> to try to like get people to talk about it and look at the issue. And so one day we, you know, we went to Hollywood Boulevard in March on World Water Day in 08 and just bought a thousand bottles of water, which now, you know, 12 years in, I'm like, oh, it was plastic bottles of water, like so unsustainable. I would never do that. But again, <laughs> we didn't know, we didn't know. And, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, we didn't have a permit. We literally got a parking ticket uh, actually not a parking ticket but like uh, <laughs> I forget what type of violation it was because we had all these cases of water on the sidewalk without like a vendor permit we oh, weren't man. selling them we were just giving them away for free so people mm -hmm. would stop and say why are you doing this so we could say did you know did you know yeah. that at that point over a billion people didn't have safe water uh, and we didn't really have a plan other than we're just going to go raise awareness and have conversations with people and, and make them know this is an issue and so uh, we talked to over a thousand people in one day and wow. everyone gave back for the water they took. So, you know, we turned $70 worth of water into $1,700 and wow. we donated it to an organization that was building water projects. And, and from there, we met two people on Hollywood Boulevard that were students who said, Hey, would you come to our school and tell our friends what you told us? And so we went and got my friends photos and spoke at two assemblies and then those two schools did fundraisers and it just it became wow. this you know one thing begat another begat another that's that's so amazing so how did people react when you would show them like these graphic images or describe the horrific crisis that's actually taking place you know it's it's interesting uh it's not too unlike anyone responding to any important humanitarian issue today, right? So I think the yeah. majority of people were moved. The majority of people, uh, I think not unlike me, right? We're like, wow, this is crazy. I live in the United States. I didn't know that this was an issue uh, yeah. because it's not something we think about, right? Like it's not something that, uh, thank God, ever really affects people in the United States. We open a bottle, turn on the tap, flush the toilet, all with clean water. And so mm -hmm. uh, most people were pretty shocked. And uh, I think most people were also you know, pretty amazed once we began connecting them to the opportunity to make impact to say, well, you know, we can build a water project for a whole village for $12,000. Mm. Or if you, you know, break it down, we can provide safe water to somebody for the rest of their life for 25 bucks. Like, that's yeah. amazing. That's awesome. What, uh, what region did the Thirst Project focus on at first? So when we first began, again, uh, full transparency, we didn't know what we didn't know. And so yeah. we actually began by fund. We were exclusively a funding organization. So we would okay. raise money and then we would go to other third party groups that were implementing projects on the ground in different countries and say, hey, we've got 20 grand, 80 grand. Uh, what do you have that we can fund? 
and they would say, okay, we've got this, you know, portfolio of projects in Ethiopia, this in Uganda, et cetera. And so, you know, the, the first project we ever did was in Uganda. Uh, but as time went on and we began, you know, funding a number of different groups and building projects, uh, we started to realize probably the least sexy statistic in the water charity space is that, you know, 60 plus percent of all water projects implemented by foreign NGOs just on the continent of Africa, not counting Southeast Asia or South or Central America fail mm. within the first year. And then if you pull back the curtain on those so-called failures, most of them, like 90% of those are what we would consider pretty inexpensive or easy repairs that communities not only can, but should be able to do themselves. Uh, and it's not that groups that are building projects are, you know, trying to misuse money or they're malicious or anything. In fact, it's almost always yeah. the opposite. But what happens is because there's immense pressure from donors to build projects quickly and as inexpensively as possible, there are a lot of components that would contribute to the life cycle or sustainability of that project that often get cut out because they yeah. aren't immediately visible. And so things like training communities on maintenance and repair, teaching communities how to change hand pumps, how to fix seals and aprons or gravel packs mm. or things like that, which communities can do if they're involved in that process of construction and are trained, but oftentimes because it takes longer to train and costs more, uh, those things don't happen. Similarly, you know, doing hydrology or groundwater surveys before you drill to determine the best location to make sure that you're actually tapping into a water table or a formation that is adequate to meet the needs of the people and won't overdraft or break and then yeah. leave people without the ability to use it. Those things you don't see, you know, when you're looking at the sort of budget of a project, you may not see a, uh, a hydrology or a groundwater survey in the finished product of that physical object, but it drastically contributes to the sustainability of it. And so, uh, you know, for us, we stopped funding all third-party organizations about two years in, uh, and we built what's now today known as our Water Project Technical Board, uh, which is a group okay. of civil engineers and hydrologists who are amazing. Uh, you know, they often either own or work for their own for-profit green civil engineering firms scattered across the country, and they actually decided uh, they created our standards for sustainability. They hired our field teams, hired our drillers, trained them, make sure that the way we interface with communities is as sustainable as possible. And uh, and now we we build our own projects. Wow, that's so amazing. So once you stepped away from the third parties, did you physically yourself get to fly out to some of these sites and request drills to be drilled um, in the new locations? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, we we uh, I've been into the field. Gosh. So many times. Uh, yeah, I, I it's I've been to the continent of Africa about 40 times uh, oh, wow. in the last decade. Uh, but, you know, we also work in Central America. We also work in Southeast Asia. And so uh, I've been to the field, obviously not at all this year uh, due to COVID. Mm -hmm. But uh, I usually get into the field now about twice a year. It used to be much more. But uh, we have full time staffers. I think sometimes people think like, we go build projects, uh, but the reality is we have yeah. full-time staffers who are from the countries, nationals from each of their own countries on the ground that oversee field operations in their countries. Mm. And then they are the nucleus between the individual villages or communities that we build projects in, the for-profit drilling companies we hire to drill, and then us here in the U.S. Gotcha. So... I was, I was very curious on this. So when you see a new well being built by the Thirst Project, what is that feeling 
feel like knowing that you started this movement and you're providing water and also saving lives at the same time? I couldn't even imagine. Oh man, it is, it is honestly, it's indescribable. Uh, you know, I still today, when we see ground get broken at a new site, I still today get the same feeling that I got 11, 12 years ago, seeing the first part, you know, it's, it's so crazy. Something go from an idea, like literally just an idea that you, you don't even know how you're going to make happen, uh, to a physical object, a water project, a well pit latrines, people using that water and the, the impact that it means in terms of health and in terms of education is, is just mind boggling. Yeah, for sure. So being youth driven, what are the main demographics for the thirst project then, if you have an idea that give, so give back? When we are a youth organization, what I mean by that is, you know, we were started as a group of young people and our yeah. messaging today pretty unapologetically is geared towards young people. Now that doesn't mean that we don't uh, receive a lot of support, thankfully from, you know, what we very lovingly call old people. Uh, but you know, it's, uh, when you look at the programs we operate in the United States, they are designed for and targeted to students. So we have a school tour first and foremost that travels across the United States, speaking at assemblies at high schools and colleges to educate students about the water crisis and challenge those students to do something about it. And so just for context with that as a first touch program that most students experience this year it's obviously virtual with covid but still i mean last year the tour went to 800 campuses uh about 120,000 students who learned about this issue uh and then after that you know or outside of that program we have a number of students who are not part of the tour but who are part of schools where we have permanent active chapters or clubs who lead Mm -hmm. fundraising or awareness campaign initiatives in their communities so we work with in any given year, not quite 400,000 high school and college students uh, who make up the majority of our school programs who are constantly doing awareness campaigns and fundraising initiatives to raise awareness of this issue and funds to build water projects. Uh, and the, the demographic breakdown from there is, I mean, we are overwhelmingly female and overwhelmingly okay. 17 and a half. So I think we're, when last I checked, we're like 74% female. Uh, and I think we're like 60 some percent uh, high school senior or 17 year old. So I mean, we are like, we are a movement of 17 year old girls. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Is, is that what you guys spe- specifically target or is that just really? That's what has bubbled up. That's what okay. has happened. That's amazing. Uh, I mean, I th- think it's logical when you think about it, right? Like don't get, not to rag on my own <laughs> gender, but, uh, yeah, yeah. like it's just, women are inherently, generally speaking, uh, more empathetic. Totally. Uh, and also, I mean, when you look at history across any number of issues, whether they be uh, domestic or international, whether they be economic or humanitarian, uh, if you want to see high ROI, invest in women, uh, invest in women-owned <laughs> businesses, invest in women, uh, truly. Uh, yeah. Like you look at uh, the ROI in different communities that happens when you invest in women-owned businesses over businesses that are led by men as startups there, the success rate is exponentially higher generally. And, mm. uh, if they have the proper support and resources to do so. That's awesome. So you mentioned how COVID has affected it. How are you guys reaching out towards more donors and spreading awareness during COVID? How does that look for you guys? It's been hard. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. It is, this has been the single hardest year of my life. I'm sure. Uh, I I am immeasurably grateful that we have not yet had to lay anyone off. 
Uh, I'm immeasurably grateful that we've been able to continue running school programs and drilling and constructing water projects, but it has been incredibly difficult. I mean, we lost easily over a million dollars worth of planned fundraising support that was supposed to come in between March and now, uh, oh, just from schools that had planned and worked to execute fundraisers all year long that just didn't happen when schools got canceled and COVID impacted us. And so, you know, we've, we've cut costs everywhere we can and pivoted and, uh, our schools teams have completely migrated all of their programming, whether they're clubs or whether they're school tour presentations to virtual presentations or virtual activations to try to engage those communities. And so the team has really innovated in pretty exciting, amazing ways. Uh, similarly, you know, we just this past Saturday, uh, I don't know when people might be listening to this, but uh, you know, right now it's October 6th and yeah. uh, you know, this past Saturday we had a, a virtual concert telethon. You know, we obviously uh, could not do something like our gala where we gather together people every year and do yeah. a big dinner and fundraiser. And so we, we said, hey, we're just gonna try to see if we can get some people to fight their Zoom fatigue and sit <laughs> in front of their computer for another hour. Uh, and we were amazed at how the community showed up and showed out and we, you know, we kept it really tight as like, man, I promised to have you guys in and out of here in an hour. And we had, you know, some really great people perform, Chris Daughtry performed and oh, wow. Todd Tillman, okay. the most recent winner of The Voice performed. But then the majority of the event was like 30 minutes of us just doing a live auction uh, where people didn't get anything. They literally just gave money. That's and, uh, and we raised about $325,000 in an hour. Wow. uh from, from about 100 people on zoom so it was just you know, it was it was it was amazing it was honestly such a, a huge inspiration and, and blessing but but uh but yeah it's it has required us to innovate and be nimble and uh it's it's been an experience for sure yeah i'm sure that that's so amazing hearing that, that story on last saturday so how were people granted to attend the gala then the digital one so people, anyone could buy a ticket that okay. wanted to come. Uh, and that was the other thing too. We're like, is anyone going to buy, like, is anyone going to pay a hundred bucks to yeah, sit yeah. on a Zoom for an hour? And like, but they did. That, that's amazing. So if you have an idea roughly how much water or drills has the water or the Thirst Project provided thus far? So we don't like buy drills. We, uh, you know, we, we build either, like I said, hand pump or whole wells yeah, or, yeah. Uh, you know, reticulated water systems or that kind of stuff. But we've, we've provided safe, clean water to over 450,000 people in mm. 13 countries. Wow. That, that's amazing. So I typically wrap up my episodes with this. If you could share one piece of advice to an aspiring entrepreneur, what would that be? Maybe something you've learned or regret? Just anything. Man. Uh, there are so many things to, yeah. to start out, but I would say the the title of your podcast, uh, at least the first word of it, super apropos, which is that the, I think a lot of us tend to have these beautiful ideas for things that we want to do, right? Whether it's mm -hmm. a product we want to create that's going to solve people's problems, whether it's a business that could be really impactful and employ people and make impact. But I, I think so often... Uh, uh, we look at what we want it to be eventually, whether that's a year, five, 10 years in, and, and we can sort of be paralyzed by uh, the first, second, third year iterations of what it might be and go, oh, that's like, it's not quite what I want it to be. Or, and I think that we can often stop ourselves from creating really amazing things because they're not yet perfect. And like, 
perfect is the enemy of great. And I would say start like the most important piece of advice I can give you is just don't wait. Like you're sure. never going to be ready. Ready doesn't exist. Ready is an illusion. Um, that doesn't mean, you know, you don't do your best to prepare as best as possible and you don't, you know, make sure that your plans and strategies are sound and your finances sound and all that. But that does mean that, uh, you know, there is that moment where it's like, okay, you've done everything you can do, just start. And it's yeah. not going to be what it will be in five years in year one, but just start. Absolutely. Well, Seth, thank you so much for joining me. And to the listeners out there, make sure to please read up and check out The Thirst Project at thethirstproject.org. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.